We do believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe in God the Father, and we believe in Jesus Christ. He is the focus of our passage today. If you'll re- uh, look in the Bibles there to uh, chapter 4, uh, the Pew Bibles are provided there. You'll find on page 1160, uh, you will find the, uh, the text. Uh, we, if you bring up the word cloud right now, I'd like to be able to just remind you that we are in a Bible-believing church. These adjectives describe who we are, uh, and I pray they describe who you are. Are you Bible-believing? If you are, it'll be evidenced by whether you read the Bible or not. It'll be evidenced if the Bible influences your decision. Because if you're not Bible-believing, you'll just do whatever seems right in your own eyes. It's kind of interesting. If you're gospel-driven, then you're going to be more concerned when you have broken relationships and difficulties. You're going to want to be able to come alongside people and seek for the restoration that Galatians 6 talks about. Uh, Or Colossians 3, if you have a conflict with one another, you want to forgive. All of these things happen because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can erase the gospel, if you can erase the Bible, what are you left with? You're left with religious people doing whatever they want to do. Or as it says in the Old Testament, in in the book of Joshua, people doing what's right in their own eyes. Right now, there's a lot of folks in our culture that are doing what's right in their own eyes because they are certainly not looking into the Word of God. Because if they did, they'd realize that they are not marching down the path that leads to light and leads to to the beauty. Now, we're going to be looking today in the book of Acts, chapter 4, and uh, I want to be able to look first at verses... uh, uh, 6 and 8, chapter 4, verse 6 and 8, and then I'm going to do 1 through 12. I want you to just notice in, in uh, verse 6, uh, as we reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word, in verse uh, 6, it says, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. That's verse 6. Very impressive scripture, isn't it? It's one I'm sure you've memorized. Then if you go to verse 8, then it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, in other words, that same group of people, rulers of the people and elders. Okay, now, I want to be able to to get your eyes focused on where we're going to look at this particular text. Because when you look normally at chapter 4 of Acts, you're still in the winds of Acts chapter 2, when the great conversions, when the preacher was preaching. And uh, then chapter 3 we looked at. But when you get to chapter 4, almost everybody skips over this part. They might land at the end of the chapter because there's some interesting and controversial things. But in in verses uh, 6 and verses 8, you can see that there is a particular group of people that we're going to be focused on. Now, if you'll follow along with me, let's start in chapter 4, verse 1, and I want to be able to see how these people, Caiaphas and, uh, and John and Alexander and even Annas, uh, I want you to see where they step into this picture. So the storyline goes in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. This is history. This is his story being preserved for us by Luke, the doctor, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He ends up writing this second uh, treatise to Theophilus about the history of the, of the apostles. He wanted to be able to show the history of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and then he shows us how the apostles carried on the message of Jesus. Now, in chapter 4, this is where you have John and Peter. Uh, These are the two guys. They've been dealing with prison, and last last chapter, they were helping this poor guy, this this fellow that was broken, and I'll get to him in a moment. But in chapter 4, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Almost sounds like uh, 
some kind of SWAT team showing up. Okay, so as, as Peter and John, the apostles, were speaking to the regular people, then you had this group of priests and the captain uh, of, the, of the temple guard as well as the Sadducees showing up. And in verse 2, it tells us about their attitude. They were greatly annoyed. This is not Peter and John. This is the people that showed up. They were greatly annoyed because the teaching, the people, uh, because Peter and John were teaching the people and they were teaching them this particular material, that they were telling them that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Apparently, that was not allowable in the schools. It was off limits. School board said you can't do that. In verse 3, and they arrested them. They arrested Peter and John, and these people put them in custody until the next day, for it was already the evening. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, this is an adding to what had happened in chapter 2 at the end, uh, that people are becoming Christians, and now the number is up to 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they all gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all were who of the high priestly family. Now you know why they came. Okay? In verse 7, and when they, that when that group... Uh, when they uh, met with Peter and John, uh, they were, Peter and John were in their midst. Then they inquired or they questioned uh, those two individuals and they asked them these questions. By what power or by what name did you do this? Now our next text. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we being examined today, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, and by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in, uh, and for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. When you realize this past passage, uh, who is he speaking to again? If you haven't figured it out, you're going to see it in some of the points. But before I actually launch into that, let me review a couple of the verses that have inspired this particular series. They're words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, and I, I started last sermon on them, and I will start this one again. When Jesus, in Matthew 24, looks at his disciples and he says to them, they will deliver you up to tribulation and they'll put you to death and you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, I'm trying to tell you that these are Christian words that I don't like talking about. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus never told us about this? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Jesus said, everybody will love you. Everybody will take care of each other. Everybody will get along. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? 
But Jesus ends up telling us that that's not the way it's going to work in this fallen world. He said there's going to be many that fall away. In verse 11, there's going to be many false voices or prophets which arise, and those false voices are going to lead many astray. Those of you that came on Father's Day, you got the book from me, and it cautioned you about whose voice are you listening to. Verse 12, and because the lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, people are going to lose zeal. They're going to say, well, it doesn't matter anyway. You know, if I do what's right, I'm still just going to get punished for it. I'm going to get canceled for it. I'm going to be ostracized, alienated. I might even be put into prison. This morning after the beach service, one of the guys came up to me and he said that he had met with a person that's got a, that does a mission over in the Middle East. And he said that some of the persecuted Christians are enslaved in a brick camp. And he said that the people that he's working with are raising money to go over there and pay the Taliban to be able to release them by paying their debt. And it's just like, that's happening in 2021? He says in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is a, a hope that Jesus gives. And whether you understand it or not, there is an end to all the suffering. There is an end to the misery. And he says that you should endure, that you should have something that will carry you through. Because remember, your salvation is not up to you. Who is the one that starts it? Who is the one that finishes it? Philippians 1.6 says it so well. My dad, the preacher, used to sign everything. He that begins a good work in you, which is God, will finish it. He'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you with all this. That's why in, in, in opening up this series, it's about we need help. You cannot live the Christian life without help. And that's why Acts 1.8 is, is our key text. Uh, and it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if you're following along with that, the key to that verse is the first phrase. You're going to get something. You're going to get something that you need. Okay, and it's called, and in the Greek, it's called dunamis. It's very similar to where we get the word Dynamite. You're going to get this juice, this power, this energy that you didn't have before. And he says, with this energy, you are going to go into all the world and you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to make disciples. And that's what uh, Great Commission is all about in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and do this. Make disciples from all the different nations, the tongues and tribes and peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And he says, teach them what I've told you. In other words, the words of God. Hence, they were Bible-believing too. Now, when you realize all of that, that brings the context in in chapter 4. God has already said he's going to give power to the believers to be a witness, to go into all the world. And now I was asking that question to you last week. Well, when all this power was being unveiled, almost like when the lightning bolts were shining in the sky, you know, how do you harness that energy? Well, God did something great in chapter 2. He had preaching go forth like it had never done before. He raised up leaders that weren't really leaders before this. They were people who hide, who were hiding. They had been with Jesus. But the power of God comes upon them that they could preach with boldness. They were unafraid. Amazing, because the narrative had been so bad before that as we went over last week. But then in chapter 3, what happens after all of the great stuff starts happening and 3,000 people converted? Well, then we saw that this mighty power was focused 
on somebody that we didn't expect, on a guy that can't even get himself up in the morning out of bed. But now after that, where does this power go? And that's where I want to focus, you, focus your attention today, that God was not saying, oh, well, I'll just shoot it out there like a shotgun. It'll, some will go there, some there, some there, some there, and we'll see if it hits anything. No, no. God sends his word out with a mission. And specifically we find in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit, with the power of God, empowers Peter to speak to a new group of people, and he does it boldly. Now, if you're following along in your, in your thing or if you have your, uh, uh, your fourth point notes, you're going to see that the, the sermon today is, is around three particular questions. The one question is asking, who are, who, who are these people that, that God is now reaching? And I want to just answer that right up front. I call them the elite, the elite. Who are the elite that God's power uh, is being unleashed to reach? Second question I'm asking is a little bit different. Uh, these elite people, what's going on in their minds? That's part of the question. But, but the question I'm posing to you all then is, how does God's power contrast with the earthly power? And you're going to see that contrast in the text today. And the third question that I'm going to ask and then answer is, what does God's power uh, to witness actually say to this elite group? If you were God and you had this elite group to speak to, what would you say to them? If you had the audience, if you had the audience of the people who make the decisions. Now, right now, who are the people that make decisions for you? Well, if my mother-in-law is listening, it might be my wife making decisions for her. You know, because right now she's out of the hospital and needs a little help. But when you're a citizen of the United States, who makes the decisions for you? Who gets to tell you where you go and where you don't go? Who gets to tell you whether you have to have a shot or whether you don't have to have a shot? Who gets to tell you whether you have to stop or whether you have to go? Now, sometimes that's the person behind you with the horn. You know, beep. You know, there's a lot of people in this world that like to tell you what to do and they'd like to tell you where to go. And I, ironically, I think a lot of people in here, we're inclined to tell other people what to do and, what to, and where to go too. We all have these thoughts, hey, but in this particular text, it's interesting that God actually has something to say to the elite, and I'll explain it to you with an answer in just a moment. So if you're following along with me, that first question is, is who are these elite? And the hint is, uh, if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 2, uh, you can see it was the people that were um, not happy. If you look there, you can see, greatly annoyed. It was the people that were annoyed, okay? And, and, and that kind of goes around. Are any of you elite? You know, I, I, I was tempted before communion today to have everybody stand and then go through one of those critical race exercises to see if, you're, uh, if, if you are worthy to come forward for communion. Are you privileged? And the point I was going to make is, no, you're not, <laughs> Okay? Um, the only way that you can come to the table is by grace. Right, and we'll get to that as we wrap things up today. But this first thing is, who are these elite? Uh, when I look through the text, I, I wanted to show you who they are by contrast. I want you to be able to say that the elite are recognized in contrast with the brokenness of chapter 3. Okay, in chapter 3, we had an individual who was 40 years old who people had to carry and put in front of the gate beautiful. 
And last week I spent a little bit of time on him. But when you think about this broken guy, he was not elite. Many of you would look at the broken guy and you would pretend that you didn't even see him. You would be like the, uh, the story of the, uh, of the guy that was on, his road, on the road to Damascus that was, uh, that was attacked. If you remember, that, that guy fell on the ground. And, and who was the ones who passed by and, and saw them and made sure they didn't look again? You know the story. It was the religious ones. They didn't want to see the brokenness. They didn't want to see the guy that was hurting. They didn't want to have to invest all the time and energy and money. They didn't want to be bothered. So who was bothered? It was the good Samaritan. It was the guy that nobody expected they would do it. Now, when you look at chapter 3, the guy who was downcast and beaten, he is still appealing to the, to the good nature of the churchgoers. Back in those days, they didn't have quite the church like this. It was the temple with the inner sanctuary, and they had the offerings and the sacrifices, that a lot of blood was going to be spilt and all that, especially on the holy days. But, I mean, if you could realize that that's where he went, and he would ask every day for help, for alms. That's not the elite. The elite, they're the ones that have their nose up and they have their act together. They're not like the broken people. Now, I can also tell you that the elite are recognized apart from the normal people. So the first one was the powerless. Then the second group is the populace. Now, if you look in chapter 4, verse 1, and, and as Peter and John were speaking to the what? To the people. To the regular people. Okay, to the population. This is the regular people, and these are not seen as the elite. If you look there, you're going to say that when you're talking to the people and then another group shows up, you can see that the regular people were not like the elite. What's the difference between the regular people and the elite? From our 21st century uh, perspective, uh, we might say that, the, that it is the voting electorate. Or it is the mass of people. It is your neighbor. Okay, it's kind of like the regular people. The elite seem to operate above the common people. The common people are seen as sheep. And the difference between the sheep and the one leading the sheep is what they usually say, the sheep and the shepherd. Do you see the difference? That when you're looking at this elite crowd that God is going to send a message to, they think that they're better than the regular sheep. It's kind of scary. The common people are the followers and the elite are the leaders. Elite do not want to be a part of the populace. Uh, they want to be above them. And hence, if you look at the different political parties and the different phrases, even in the last election, you heard some of the people who were in the elite class and they came up with terms for the common people, right? You know some of them. Some of them were really negative, and some of them were, were more positive. Uh, some, some of the political parties said, oh, you're all victims. And some of the political leaders would say, oh, you're all deplorables. You know what I'm talking about. You can see how different elite people look at you and me. The elite are recognized as having something more. And uh, three things that I found in the text is they have more knowledge, more initiative, and more influence. When you look there, they appear to be in the know. They're recognizing when things are changing. The elite are aware of what's being educated, and most of the common people aren't. 
I heard somebody recently use the illustration that during the COVID, where everybody's been shut down, it's been interesting because parents are finally learning what their children are, are being taught at school. Okay, because of Zoom classes, you could actually overlook your child's shoulder and you could see what the teacher is actually passing on to your child. Now, were all the parents happy? Were any parents happy? You know, when you think about this, it was really kind of intriguing. But the elite people already know what's being taught. How do we know they, that they know? Because they're the one teaching the teachers. They're the ones that have the agenda. They're the ones who write the curriculum. They're the ones that have the message that, that's going to be communicated. Now, it's very interesting that they have the know. And in this particular passage, one of the things that you know about these elite, if, and let me read it for you, uh, they, in verse three, or in verse 2, they were annoyed because of what was being taught to the regular people. Um, do you see the parallels even today? People get annoyed when you start changing what they've put in place for everybody to know. It was a scary time. Secondly, they have a power to initiate. These people that are in the know, they also had the power to do something about it. Now, why did they gather together in verse 6? If I, if I read it for you again, it says, um, but on the next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes, this is verse 5, they gathered together in Jerusalem and they got together with the bigwigs, the, the super elite, with Caiaphas, uh, with Annas the high priest, with Caiaphas, and then with John and Alexander and all the rest of the high priestly clan. Now, it's really kind of interesting. Why would they meet? Well, don't be smart with me and say that they, uh, they have a Twitter account or their Twitter account wasn't working or Facebook wasn't meeting up. You know, the reason they got together is because they thought they were going to be able to do something about the, their annoyance. They want the message to be taught to the people. They want the status quo to be maintained. And these leaders, these elite are saying, no, no, no. You know, it's like Matumbo. Not on my watch or not in my house. Some of you get that. He was the guy that would block all the basketball shots. He was like seven foot three. And uh, he would say, no, 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 not on my watch. Now, if you, if you take a look at the elite, they're troubled. They're annoyed. And they think that they know, and then they're going to do something about it because they have the initiative, and then they want to use their influence. Because if you look next, they have a power called influence to steer the crowd. They, they are like, uh, like I was picturing the movie City Slickers. It was a fun movie to watch. But City Slickers had these uh, boys from the city, and they went out west, and they met with that guy that knew that one thing. But actually, the whole storyline was they're out there, and they're, they're put on these horses, and they're supposed to get the cattle to move from this field over to that field. They were basically, um, they were, as, as I was trying to say, they're trying to cattle ranchers driving the herd of steer. Okay, the, the elite were basically the same kind of thing. They were trying to take the regular people and steer them where they needed to go. And if you look at the influence that they had, they took the police of their day. They didn't defund the police. They actually took the police and they said, arrest these guys. And guess what the police did? Yes, sir. How do you think Peter and John ended up in prison? It wasn't just saying, well, we wish that they would be in jail. Bink, and then they go there. No, they, they had enough influence in the society to be able to take down these people because if you remember last week's sermon, the narrative about Jesus is really bad these days. How many of you want to be identified with the guy that was hoisted up on the cross 50 days ago? 
How many of you are even bold enough to name the name of Jesus? How many of you are fearful that you might be rooted out by your neighbor? That you might be put on the list of people that are cantankerous to society's order? You might be seen as an insurrectionist or something. Now, when you realize all of this is going on, that is the first thing, that God's power to witness, Acts 1.8, that you shall receive power to be my witnesses, this is where the power is being generated through you to reach the elite. Isn't it wonderful? God has in mind not just the broken, but also the ones, the broken in body, but the ones who are high on their own power. Now, that was the first question. The second question is, what is going on in their minds? We know who the elite are, but what, is, what are they thinking about? There's one question that they ask, which when we, expect, when we expose that, then you're going to realize, hey, this is what they think. This is how the elite are operating. Okay, and when I, when I looked at this, um, these, in verse 7, you can see it. They finally come to this conclusion when they, uh, when they had set Peter and John in, their, in the midst of them. Then they said, we have some questions we have inquiring minds. We are trying to figure this out. We're elite. We are elite. We know what we're talking about, but something's different. They say, by what dunamis or by what name, nomos, did you do this? Okay, so in the second point, if you're writing down some notes, I want to be able to show you that God gives his power to the disciples to address uh, this, and, and he shows it in contrast with the earthly powers. Uh, the earthly powers are, are kind of interesting to me because the earthly powers are known by the elite. The elite already have the knowledge, they already have the influence, and they already have the initiative. You know, the, the earthly elite know what it is to be in power, and they want to keep their power. You know, it's just like any good elective official. They want to be elected again, okay? And in order to be elected again, you usually do what it takes in order for the electorate to think that you're good. Or you rig the system, or you do whatever you do in order to try to make it so that you have an advantage to be able to get back in. And you already do because your name recognition is better than the other, other person's. Now, when I look at this particular thing, the contrast between the earthly power and the, and the heavenly power, or this new power, is, is that there is new information, and there is also, um, there is a new scope of things. So when these elite are looking at the situation, what's going on in their mind there, they're saying, we know how this works, and it's not working like it's supposed to. Okay, they are recognizing some new data that's come into the storyline. Okay, they're recognizing, as I preached last week, the new narrative. And I was making a fascinating com comparison last, last week about how when the media can take a storyline and then all of a sudden that's the only thing that's, that you hear about. Well, God has actually taken the brokenness and changed the storyline. So now the elite, the ones who have had control of the press, the ones who have had, had control of the political positions, the ones who are influencing all of the religious leaders and probably some of the commercial leaders, these people are frustrated and annoyed because they're not keeping control. And so when you unfold this, they're able to notice keenly that the people are listening to other voices. They're able to notice that there are other voices, and they're trying to use their censorship to be able to fix it. You know what they did recently? They just put the guy that spoke up in jail. 
Why would you put somebody in jail? Because if he won't zipper his own lip, you're going you're to make it so that his lips don't get heard by the other people. And so these elite people were using their power and their influence, their earthly agenda stuff, to be able to get what they wanted, to be able to keep the power they had. It's a dangerous place when you see that, when you see what's going on. Uh, they wanted to, to minimize the significance of these preachers. But when they finally cornered the preachers, you know, because they've already been in jail overnight, now they gather together, they get the elite people. Can you imagine where they met? Do, they, do you think that they, they just met at a, at a street corner? No, if you're elite and you have the power and you're getting the high priest together with all these others, I can assure you that they had a wonderful setup. And just like I'm standing on a stage above you, I bet you that they had a platform that they were looking down at Peter and John as well. And I think that they outnumbered them and they outflanked them and they set the situation up. So if you have your Bibles open and you'll see the the unfolding there, uh, on that next day, this is verse 5, on the next day all these key people get together from the elite. They gather in Jerusalem, their hometown, their home turf, and they they get the big wigs of the high priest and they get Caiaphas as well, as well as all of these kin from from the, uh, the privileged group. Now... If you're a part of the high priestly group, what kind of clothes do you think you're wearing? They're not dressed like the Kardashians. I want you to know. It's not quite like that. Uh, They had all sorts of the fancy garments and the robes. And when a priest, when a high priest walked through, everybody was supposed to notice. And that's similar to how the Pope goes around with his special hats and special garments. is so that you can't miss them. Okay, so the high priest and all these elite people gather and they corner John and or they get Peter and John and in the middle of them, verse 7. And when they had set them, that is Peter and John, in the middle of them, and when they finally got the right setting where they could use their influence and power and they could look like they were going to come down heavy. You know, I almost picture like if a SWAT team showed up or if an FBI was coming and opening your door and they would get you at 6 o'clock in the morning, what would be going through your mind? You know, you'd be a little bit afraid and scared. Well, they've got Peter and John right where they want them. And they look at them and they said, something's not right here. If you look at the question, by what dunamis or by what name are you doing what you're doing? When was the last time anybody asked you by what power you're doing what you're doing? Does anybody even notice you? Are you successfully being invisible? So if you're a Christian, you're not even noticed. Nobody even ever wonders if there's any power in you at all because you just conform. You just blend in. You see, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12 after he gave all the doctrines, don't be like the world, don't conform. He says, says, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that's only reasonable. And he says, don't be like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may actually be different, that you may do the will of God rather than doing the will of man. It's pretty interesting when you see this scope 
Now, I told you there's three questions, and I wanted to, to, to dwell a little bit more on the third. So in, this, in the question of saying what was, what was the contrast, you can see the difference between the earthly contrast and the, and the power of God. They didn't know the power of God. And so that's why they're asking this question. We know that the power that you're doing, whatever it is you're doing, is not what we got. And we know what the power base is supposed to be like. We know what it is when you plug in. This is what's supposed to happen. But what's happening is not what's, what we expected. So they're asking questions because the power of God, Acts 1-8, has actually been inserted. And now in chapter, uh, in, in verse 8, it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember Acts 1-8, if you could bring that verse up for me, Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit comes, what is he going to bring? He's going to bring the power. Okay, and so when you realize this, and Peter, who has now the power that the Holy Spirit's giving him, the utterance to speak boldly, uh, he says to these elite people, and he calls them out by name, hey, you rulers, you people who think that you're above everybody else, you're over them, he says, and that includes people who have that elder status or that maturity status, he says, and then in verses 9 through 12 is where we get the message. So what would God say? You've heard it, but I don't know if it resonates with you. Uh, first of all, I want you to know that the reason that they're speaking, I want to give you a little context, is because it already, they already have spoken. They have spoken already because of chapter 3. The whole reason for this whole meeting to take place is because of what happened in chapter 3. Now, do you remember what happened in chapter 3? That the power of God comes upon the great Peter and John... And they notice the guy that's been lame for 40 years. God was healing brokenness. He was taking the person who's no-named, who's not elite, and he's done something wonderful. That was the context for it. So now in this message, in this brief little sermonette that the apostle Peter now has the opportunity to reach the elite who would never listen to any commoners. If you listen there, there's two things that are declared and two things that are revealed. The declaration of the first thing is that there was a good deed that happened. If you read the text, nobody's in denial. He's just declaring it. There was something good that happened. Now, wouldn't it be great if the news could be able to at least lead with something good that happened? Some of you might actually turn the news on every day because it's so easy to turn it off now. But the Apostle Peter starts off by saying, yes, there was a good deed and it took place and it, there is good in this world. Wow, what a neat declaration. Because the elites were not talking about all the good things because their whole concern was to keep control of the sheep. Now, the other thing that he declares is that there's a new power. And you can see it as it unfolds, and I'll read it for you in a second. There's a new power, or I like to say there's a new sheriff in town. Now, if you go back to some of the old Wild West things, when you had a new sheriff in town, what did that mean to the bad guys? Uh-oh. You know, now there's somebody that might actually stand up to us. You know, somebody that's going to wear one of those big star badges and they're going to try to put down the wrongdoers. And so the new sheriff in town is kind of interesting. There's a new power in this town. There is something that is unlike what anything you've been used to. And so that's why it's interesting that there was a good deed and that good deed that there was a healing taking place and there was a new power that's in town because that's why they're asking about it. What is this power? What is that? And so he, Peter ends up saying, there is a new power and it's something that, I, that you even should know about. 
Now, I told you there's two things that were declared. Now, the two things that were revealed. Uh, the evidence that was given is that uh, as he's declaring this, there was this one guy standing there. This one guy that happens to be about 40 years old. Now, if you're thinking with me right now, and I hope your thinking cap is on, who is it? There you go. It's the guy who was healed. The guy that was healed is a powerful witness. He doesn't even have to say anything. Everybody knows him because he's already asked money from everybody over the 40 years. Everybody's probably felt the guilt of making sure you pull out your wallet and take, put, out, put out a couple coins. Or if you see somebody before you, put out a few more coins than they did. You know, you got to look good. But they, everybody knew that the guy standing besides Peter and, Jane, or, uh, Peter and John was that no-name guy who was broken but is now whole. The evidence is right before the elite. And if you look at the elite, they're saying, at the, at the end of the story, they're like, yeah, we can't do anything about that. We can't fake it. We can't trick people. We can't, we can't spin it. We can't even put fake news to it. Everybody can see that that guy was, was the, the same guy, and now he's standing next to Peter and John, and it's like, whoa. It's almost like they're trapped. What do we do now? Now, that was evidence, but then he uses another piece of evidence that, I, that you can't miss, and it leads us to the Lord's table. He uses the name J-E-S-U-S. That's in English. He names Jesus as evidence. Now, everybody has just looked at this 40-year-old no-name guy, and they all know him. Now, remember, how many days are we past Pentecost? Maybe two, maybe three. You know how many days Pentecost is from, from the Passover? 50. You got 49, which is seven weeks plus a day, because it's usually on a Sunday. So when you get these 50 days, maybe 52 days. 52 days since Jesus was, was crucified and buried. 52 days, and they're standing in Jerusalem. 52 days since everybody had said, we want Barabbas, we don't want... Jesus! Now, do you understand the evidence of the name of Jesus? Everybody knew that man, too. Jesus hadn't asked them for alms. Jesus hadn't asked them for anything. But they knew that Jesus' name. And they knew the shame that was associated with that because they knew that they had contributed to making sure that he was canceled, erased, deplatformed. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as if our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was bruised, he was beaten, he was smitten, he was pierced for our iniquities. When you go through Isaiah 53, Isaiah knew how bad it was going to be that none of us would even want to be identified with Jesus. That was the message to the elite. Let me read it for you. Verse 9, he says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by the means that this man has been healed, then let it be known to you and to anybody else in this, in this nation of Israel that... 
by the name of Jesus Christ. Of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. That by the name of Jesus Christ, by him, this no-name man is standing before you healed. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected. This Jesus is the cornerstone upon which this power comes. Verse 12, for there's no hope, there's no saving, there's no remedy except in Jesus. Now, as we come to the table in a moment, I'll get the elders ready, you know, you can all gather in the back for a moment, but it was very interesting when Peter, under the, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, the power that God said he'd give you to be a witness even to the elite, he looks at these elite, including Caiaphas, including Annas, with all their fancy robes, and he's probably looking up at them because they've tried to probably set him in that humble state. He looks up at them and he says, Jesus, one of Nazareth, Nazareth. Now, I don't know if any of you know about Nazareth, and I mentioned at the beach, if you've been to Israel, have you been to Nazareth? Yeah, you probably have. You know, there's a well there that Mary probably got water from that Jesus drank from, probably authentic. But then they have a couple of diggings, and you go down, and there's a couple of neat buildings and stuff, and you can find Joseph's carpenter's house. I have no confidence. We were there. I have no confidence that that's actually the place, but it had to be around there. I think Joseph had a, was a stonemason. He worked there, and Jesus probably was there helping him. And then there's a place where they think Mary probably lived. And, of course, the Catholics have a huge, big church over it, and it's pretty neat. Um, but you know what they said about Nazareth? It's the place of losers. What good can come out of Nazareth? Now, in our culture today, you all know where are the bad places that losers come from. We all have that knowledge. And even if we're wrong, we think we know. But Jesus is seen as from Nazareth. The elite are looking with all their education, with all their pomp and circumstance, with all their, their regalia and... and, and, and under the inspiration and power of the Spirit, he says, there's a lowly guy from a place that you would not even give respect to anybody from, that Jesus. Then, he says, point two, is the Jesus whom was crucified. Is that what the text actually says? Now, if you look there, you're going to find a little bit more. It's the one that you helped to put to death. I don't know about you, but that guy, Peter, had knees of steel. You know, I'm a, uh, you know, a stutter or something like this because you're standing in front of the elite. No, 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 no. The power of the Spirit to speak the gospel with boldness. And he looks at the elite and he says, you guys know who Jesus is. When I mention his name, you know he's from Nazareth, but you know that you helped to put him to death. You lied about his his." his his company keeping with, with rebels. You lied that he was badder than, than uh, Barabbas. You are the phonies that were looking for someone to take over the Romans, and when you didn't get it out of them, you abandoned them. You rejected them worse than Judas did. Whew. The elite 
heard this Jesus that they knew that they had just 52 days helped to crucify. And then the third thing he says, which is what brings us to the table, this Jesus that looked to be a loser, this Jesus that hung on the cross and you even helped him to be, to be put down that bad, this Jesus, God the Father, raised from the dead. This Jesus is alive. This Jesus lives. This Jesus that you guys wanted to reject as being not fit for your building of power. This Jesus is the cornerstone for the greatest power that ever will be, the church of Jesus Christ. It will prevail and the gates of hell will not be able to stop its advance. This Jesus is your salvation. The communion table that's before us is, is helping us to see Jesus. Oh, yes, when you look at the bread and you look at the cup, you're going to say, there's real juice in there, and there's real bread there. Yeah, we do actually have real bread and real juice. It's not all the cups that we've had for months and months and months and months. When you see this, there are some that would say, oh, that's Jesus. That turns into his blood and his body. When we see these elements, they are symbolic. Communion doesn't turn them into Jesus, but they are, Christ says that this becomes uh, representative of my body. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of, my, of the New Testament of blood that is poured out for many. When you see these things, you're going to be able to see Jesus Christ. There are some here today who are saying, should I partake? Well, of course I got to partake. Everybody that's going to see me, when it passes before me, I got to take it. No! 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, don't eat and drink just because everybody else is. He says, don't do it unworthily because there are some that have died because they've handled, they've not discerned things well. That's why I give a discouragement for children to partake of communion until they've met with the elders and been able to explain with the help of their parents that they know who Jesus Christ is and what he did. But do you know? Because when you partake of this body and you partake of the blood, you do show forth the Lord's what? death. You see, the message of the cross is evident right here. And the preaching of the cross is to the elite foolishness. It is to the populace foolishness. And it is to the powerless foolishness. But unto those of us who God gives the eyes of faith, it is the dunamis. It is the power of God unto salvation. And as this table is brought before you, I want to encourage you to come and dine because there is no other name given among men that triggers the knowledge of that accomplishment. Let me pray. If the elders would come forward. Dear